Assalamu alaikum. How are you doing? And welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope, and we just sit back and have a conversation on what it means to live your best life. Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, this is the Mobile University for Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Now, today's guest is Tom Gibson. He is an educator. He has this dope uh, podcast. You should check out the logo, and he's on Simplecast, which I <laughs> encourage all educator podcast educator podcasters to do so. Uh, we're going to have him on and uh, we're going to talk about uh, his thoughts on education. Uh, he's doing some wonderful things such as a classroom community. I want a, a classroom economy. I'm like, what is that? So we're going to jump into that. Uh, we're going to talk about his thoughts on financial literacy education, which all of you know, I'm all about the money. And well, some of you think I'm all about the money to the point of I'm selfish, but Tom, Tom wrote something, a blog post where, and I want to get into it, but essentially it was, if you are, as a teacher, you got problems with your own money, can you really show up for your kids? Uh, so we're going to get into that as well. So I'm, uh, I hope everyone, I, ha I haven't gone astray so far and you're still with me. I'm just here. <laughs> uh, we're going to, look, for those who will be listening on Apple Podcasts, Simplecast, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Tom, I know I've gotten off track so far. Will you please introduce yourself? Hi, Dr. Will. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am Tom Gibson. I am a middle school math, robotics, and YouTube video production teacher in Austin, Texas. Um, I am the creator and host of the Stories from the Classroom podcast. I also have a YouTube channel where I help teachers do innovative work in their classrooms with a new video each week. Um, as well, as uh, you kind of mentioned, I created a course for teachers uh, on how to create and manage a classroom economy in their classrooms. Excellent, excellent. Austin, Texas, too rich for my blood. Uh, <laughs> woo. So, yeah, Tom, who it is, man? Wow. Okay. Uh, you know, I'm like we all, we're educators and we know what we make. And I'm just telling you that, uh, you know, there are certain parts of the country where it's better to live off some money than others. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> what did you think? And I'm always curious. So I, I like to start my podcast by asking this question because, you know, I'm 46. If someone would have asked me at 6, 10, 15 years old, what would you be doing? Instructional technologist, podcaster, et cetera, would have not even crossed my mind. So what do you think you would be doing when you were growing up? And how did you find yourself in education? For some reason, when I was real young, I, I said I wanted to be a mailman because I loved getting mail because as a kid, you never get mail. So when anything comes in the mail, it's pretty exciting. But now I get tons of junk mail. and It's not nearly as exciting. <laughs> um, the first time we got a computer in the house, I think that was when I realized like I want to do something with computers. I loved computers. Um, even before we actually had a computer with the internet at the house, uh, for Christmas, like when back in 1995, when I was, I don't know, about eight years old, we got this little V tech, like toy laptop. And I remember looking through the instruction booklet and it was showing all this like programming things that you can code and all this other stuff. I was kind of playing around with that. Um, and it never actually did anything. I was just typing in all these little things. And, uh, just, just since I can remember, um, I always wanted to do stuff with computers. Uh, and so when I went, um, into college, uh, that's love of computers. Like actually a few years before that in high school, I was kind of recording music at my house and I was like, I really like learning how to record music on my computer, but this was before GarageBand or anything like that. I was using Windows voice recorder um, with this little tiny microphone. Um, and I, I found out that there was an audio engineering program um, at Texas State University, which was a little bit uh, north of San Antonio where I was living at the time. And I went there and I loved it. It was a bunch of projects uh, that we did, uh, video projects, audio projects, things like that. Um, I had no intention of becoming a teacher, uh, but as the 
the as my time in college was beginning to end, I was seeing where a lot of my peers were going, um, and the ones that were really into the audio engineering aspect of stuff were going to big cities. A lot of them were working for free in internships. This was a little bit after the Napster thing in two thousand in the mid two thousands, and I was like, man, I don't know if like music studios are really the way to go. One, I don't really like recording other people's music. I like doing some of my own music and audio projects. And two, like, I don't want to work for free for several years just to, just to see a company uh, close its doors by the time they, <laughs> after, after that time. And so yes, a few things were beginning to point me to teaching. Um, at the time, I was, uh, I was helping out with a campus ministry, Campus Crusade for Christ, and I was leading a Bible study for international students. And most of them were not Christians and really weren't interested in becoming Christians, but they were curious about Christianity. And so I remember kind of like leading these Bible studies about like, okay, well, let's see what the Bible says. Let's see what Jesus said. Um, and even looking back now as a teacher, I remember uh, going back and I would go to, the, go to the library and I'm like, okay, let me print this passage in Korean for my two friends that are Korean. Let me print this passage out in Japanese. Let me print this passage out in Turkish. And in this small way, I was like differentiating for my students and kind of like making what we were doing as accessible as possible to everyone that was there. Um, and so I did that for several semesters. And I remember in one of my electronics classes, and I wasn't very good at electronics, but the professor was struggling to explain some concept that for whatever reason I was understanding and others weren't, which was not the norm. Uh, and I was like, oh, it was like this sequence of things that you had to do and everyone was really confused. And he's like, does, does anyone wanna, wanna try and explain this? And so I was like, okay, I can try and explain it. And you know, I went up and kind of shared my thought process. And after the class, one of my friends was like, I had no idea what was going on until you got up there and explained it. And so like that, some, that little comment mixed with some of the stuff that I was doing uh, with the international Bible study, um, I was like, well, I'm, I'm dating this girl that I want to marry next year and I need a job. Um, maybe I'll be a counselor. I'm, I like talking to people. And then I saw this th one counseling program said like, you need to be a teacher for two years to do it. I'm like, Ugh, I don't want to be a teacher for two years. Um, but then I was like, well, maybe I'll give it a shot. And so I, I started substitute teaching. It was really, really challenging. Uh, but the days that I, I felt like I had a win um, were so satisfying. Um, I started doing uh, alternative certification here in Texas, learning about different pedagogy, taking content exams. Um, and this is after I'd already graduated with my bachelor's of science in audio engineering. Uh, and then a year, uh, I had one semester of subbing and then the following summer, um, I got hired on for my first job as a fifth grade teacher, and I am now in my ninth year. I did three years of fifth grade, um, and now five years uh, as a middle school teacher. Wow. All right. That's a journey right there. <laughs> right there. Um, where does your passion for innovation and education come from? You know, what drew you to instructional technology? I think, I mean, what I loved when you think of like all of the stuff that I was doing in college with like the video projects and the audio projects, I love just making projects. Um, and so when I became a teacher, I, I brought that with me. Um, one of the first things that I, uh, one of the teachers had told us in our teacher training that he did was he had these students do this dear world project where you would say, okay, in three to five sentences or three to five words, what would your message to the world be? And then they would hold up a picture of what their message would be. And he made like a little video of it. And I was like, oh, okay, that could be kind of cool. And that was one of the very first videos that I did in my classroom. And then over time, I thought like, well, what other kind of videos could I do in the classroom? And then I started getting onto YouTube and I was like, okay, well, if I want to make videos that can help other teachers, what are things that I feel I'm doing pretty well uh, to share with other teachers? And the interesting thing about when you're trying to make consistent content is that you, you start thinking like, I don't have anything new to film, so I guess I'll try to find something new to do in the classroom for the sake of creating content that will hopefully be useful to other teachers. And in turn, it ends up making it more exciting for me because I'm doing something new with my students. It's more exciting for them because like, oh, this is like a new way of reviewing for the test that we've never done before. And, and then 
the third string is like, okay, and now I actually have like meaningful content for, for anyone that's watching the YouTube channel. Um, that's going to be hopefully help them do this, this new thing that they're wanting to do in, in the classroom. So I think this desire to, to just create stuff is what drew that because then I thought, well, what do I create? Well, I, I've already made videos of all the things that I'm, that I already feel I'm doing well. I need to start doing more things so I can create more videos or podcasts or whatever it is um, to make it more interesting for me, for my students, and hopefully be a benefit to the other educators watching. Mm. So you are doing some interesting things in the K through 12 space. And I don't know when it happened, but you decided I'm going to podcast. I'm going to have a YouTube channel. I'm going to mm -hmm. become this content creator, which for those of us who do these things, understand the amount of work mm -hmm. that it takes to do on top of the fact that as an educator, we don't have the same kind of days that other professions have where you kind of work, you go home and you kind of mm -hmm. no longer involved, but in yeah. education, we know you bring the, you bring work home. Yeah. Please speak to why, to your why, for actually becoming a content creator. Early on, um, I was inspired to start creating more uh, by watching Casey Neistat uh, on YouTube. And I thought like, man, he's doing really cool stuff. And I mean, his camera is just a little bit better than mine. And you know, I've been making little videos, like they weren't vlogs at the time, but I've been making little videos since 2007 and 2008. Uh, my very first YouTube video was a trip I went to Panama with my mom, who's Panamanian. And, and so it started with me just making videos because I was inspired by another, another content creator. Um, and so I started making videos and reflecting and getting better at making videos and thinking of like, okay, well now instead of using iMovie, uh, my school, we have Premiere Pro, so let me get Premiere Pro installed. And so, okay, so now I'm doing Premiere Pro. This is taking a while to edit. Let me find some videos on how to speed up this editing workflow so this is not taking so much time because I want to keep making more videos and make it more efficient. And so I'm like learning about editing and making it faster and doing it every week. And, and so from doing that, I start, you know, watching Casey and watching all these other people, I start seeing other content creators and all these other people that I'm learning about how to edit on YouTube. And there, I, I come across guys like Gary Vaynerchuk and he's like, all right, if you want to build some kind of business, you know, these are the things that you need to do on social media. And I'm like, okay, well, let me, let me try these one thing at a time. And for a long time, the, as far as like what inspired the podcast, um, I, I listen to podcasts all the time. I, one of the, one of my side streams of income is doing freelance voiceover work. Um, I have a degree in audio engineering, so I'm like, I feel I've got the right mix of skills to do a podcast well. Um, and I want to do it in the education space because that's what I know. And so the very first podcast came from, uh, a, actually a writing prompt. I was blogging before the podcast, I was blogging and reflecting every week. Um, and one of the reflections, uh, that Julie Rulbach, who's a math teacher, really big in the, the hashtag MTBOS, the math Twitter blogosphere, um, a bunch of math teachers on there on Twitter. She was posting, she said, take 10 minutes of audio in your classroom and reflect on it. What did you notice? What did you like? What was surprising? What did you not like? What do you want to work on? Um, and I wasn't a stranger to hearing my own voice and watching footage of myself. So it wasn't as jarring as I think as most people when they see like, oh my gosh, do I sound like that? Um, or do I look like that? But that was the, the catalyst for like, okay, this is going to be my podcast, my very first podcast. I am going to take this audio. I think it's going to be interesting to have this, this classroom audio mixed with my own reflections as opposed to me just talking to a microphone and saying how things went. You're hearing the conversation I'm having with the students and the, the interaction back and forth. And so I was like, okay, this is... This, this I think could be something different, almost like NPR does where you have like this field audio mixed with different interviews. And that's what my goal for the podcast is, where there is this music that kind of draws you in and it evokes some kind of emotion. And I'm talking to several different people and you're, you're hearing classroom audio about the thing that I'm talking to the person with in the interview and we're going back and forth. And so that was really exciting for me as, as, 
as hard and as much time as the podcast takes to edit, um, again, using Adobe Audition and figuring out all the ways to speed it up as quickly as possible, thankfully having a bachelor's of science to back me up in that in audio engineering. Um, it's so, so satisfying to kind of have this complete product that I really think will bring value to teachers, whether I'm talking about how one of these other high, uh, high school government economics teacher does this year-long economics game where each week of the year is like one year of life and the kids are kind of starting the year at 18 years old and then they're 65 by the end of the year. How did they spend their money, invest their money and things like that? You're hearing the classroom audio and I'm interviewing him and it hopefully bringing value to economics teacher or interviewing several people in the esports space and hearing like me experiment with doing some kind of esports project with my own students interlaced with those interviews of people who are doing it at the college level or at the high school level or at the middle school level. It's, it's the satisfaction, I think, of just completing something that I know all the time and the work and the effort that went into it that's satisfying for me, um, but also satisfying to know that it is going to be helpful for the right people that are looking for this type of content and not just hearing someone talk about it, but, but hearing, hearing the sounds of the kids in the classroom and hearing that interview with it. Mm. So how did you you know, get turned on to a Casey, a Sarah, you have uh, Roberta Blake and others, mm -hmm. you know, the only person I know who's an educator who like really is into that stuff and writes about it or talks about it is Jeff Bradbury. Mm -hmm. So that, so for even me, I, I guess such as yourself, but you actually have the degree and the inclination for it, the, the passion for it is I have had to check out uh, Pat Flynn and some other mm -hmm. people to learn how to create a podcast, to learn how to, you know, learn about, okay, different microphones and all of this stuff when it comes to content creation. And you were going to people who were not in our field mm -hmm. to see what they were doing. I, I, how did you get turned on to that? And what was that like? Well, I, I guess it's, it, it's different for you because you do have that background that the average mm -hmm. educator doesn't have. So when you were going to them and listening to them and, and getting that information that you could then take back into the education sphere of creating content that way, how did that sort of, influence mm -hmm. how you have been able to create something that is unique to you within our space. Yeah. Well, I will say uh, all those names that you're mentioning, those are all podcasts that I listen to. And what's funny is I was listening a couple of weeks ago to a Pat Flynn podcast about online courses. And then right after that, listening to a Dr. Will podcast, contextualizing online courses for educators. I was like, yes, this is, this is exactly what I'm looking for. But what actually turned me on to Finding Casey was um, different podcasts. Uh, I was listening to the Jordan Harbinger show um, at the time, and he, was, he, had Casey, he had Tim Ferriss on. I had never heard of Tim Ferriss, and I'm like, I like this guy. I find out Tim Ferriss has a podcast. I go and listen to Tim Ferriss's podcast. He has this YouTuber named Casey Neistat on. I've never heard of Casey Neistat. I don't even really watch YouTube a ton. Uh, but he says, if you're going to watch one video by mine, go check this out. I go see the Casey Neistat video. And then it's like, oh, well, this is interesting. I watch the Casey Neistat videos. And then I get introduced to people like Sarah Dietschy, to Roberto Blake. To, and then it starts opening things out. Then I start creating my own content. And, and I think just podcasting really led me to all of these different people because all these people were finding their ways onto the different podcasts and sharing their message. And then I was going and checking them out as far as taking that, uh, and contextualizing it in the, in the space of education, it's really just kind of experimenting. Um, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk's like talking about like, you need to be posting to this and this and this and this. But he also says, I mean, you don't have to do that, but if you're, if you're not doing that, don't complain that you're not growing. And I'm like, okay, that's fair. <laughs> He's like, I'm not spending hours on Twitter and like no one, 
I don't deserve, you know, growth. I don't deserve attention from different people. I don't deserve subscribers or followers or anything like that. And they all take a certain amount of work. Um, but listening to all of them have helped me kind of grow and focus my own Edru brand um, because a lot of them talking about like doing some kind of niche, doing some kind of focus. Um, early on with my YouTube stuff, I had the teaching stuff, uh, my math stuff, my robotics stuff, uh, some classroom economy stuff. But then I was like, mm, I'm going to throw in some travel vlogs and uh, I'm going to also show how to get the best settings on this camera. And I'm going to show how to edit a voiceover. And then I'm going to show uh, some productivity stuff as far as like my meal prep. And so I was all over the place. And then I'm like, why am I not growing? And it's like, well, it's great that I'm making all these videos and trying different things. And at the time that was enough for me because I'm like, okay, that's, that's the goal of this YouTube channel. I just want to have fun making videos and get better. But as time went on, I'm like, I'm seeing all these people make a business out of doing YouTube, out of doing the podcast, out of doing Instagram. And I want to, I want to be able to, to do some kind of business here and to be able to, to double or triple the amount of money that I make as a classroom teacher because people are doing it. <laughs> you know, like when I talk to average people, they're like, well, is that even likely? It's like, yes, like there's tons of people out there that are doing this and they're not, they're not they're not always just like the top 1%. Like there's a PE teacher called the PE specialist who's got a membership website where he shares all his PE resources and he makes an additional forty-five, $50,000 a year just from the membership website. And so I started thinking like, okay, all these people were telling me all the different ways that I need, if I wanted to grow, if I wanted to find an audience that connected with what I wanted, I needed to be clear about what I wanted, um, about what I was sharing. And so that's when I started like, okay, who am I targeting? I can't, I'm not going to target teachers and filmmakers. That's two very different groups. And so I made a separate channel for the filmmaking stuff that I also use for my students that are in the YouTube class. And then my main channel is like, okay, let me focus this on teaching. Uh, but what exactly about teaching? Most of the stuff I do, I'm trying to do something different, something new, something unique in the STEM space. And so, okay, well, what about doing innovation, helping teachers do innovative work in the classroom, whether it's like this really cool test review thing or this classroom economy thing, or should you start your own teacher podcast or should you start your own teacher YouTube channel, helping those teachers that are wanting to try something different and something new. And that's what I've been doing since the beginning of this year, 2019. Um, and it's been good. It's been helpful. And it's also helped me like when I'm planning out my videos, we were talking about before we record it, like we, we, I batch my videos. I'll sometimes record four videos in one day, change shirts in between videos, which is something I learned from video influencers, which are, is another group on YouTube. So it looks like the passage of time. Um, but one doing that also helps with what we were saying about having time to actually do the YouTube, do the podcast. So I can film, you know, four videos in one day, and then I can edit those videos throughout the month and release them one week, you know, one video per week or something like that. Um, and as they say, like you, you make time for the things that matter. Um, and so obviously I think there is a limit to that, but uh, I, I, tr I, I wake up early. Um, but at the same time, you know, once my wife gets home from work at five o'clock, uh, I get home a little bit before her, I, um, I shut it all off and we, we spend time together. Um, and so you, you make the time for the things that you want to do. I hear you. I go curse free Gary V. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Cause he is just like, Oh yeah. <laughs> all right, yeah. man. I, I pulled a clip uh, of one of his, because uh, one of the teachers that I interviewed had actually went to go and go and talk with Gary Vee, um, and there was a clip online of them having kind of an interaction. And so I was like, do I bleep, bleep him out, or do I just let his full, raw, authentic self come through? And so I bleeped it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm like, like, he's getting royalties from it, the way he curses. Uh, yeah. uh, so you, you mentioned it. Earlier in niching down, right? So that, that's what you hear in business, niching down, have a, a, a singular focus. And I believe that every educator needs to have that something that propels mm -hmm. their teaching, right? Whether it's a methodology, a mission, something that drives the direction of their career. What was your process in discovering what you wanted out of yours? Um, well, I read a book called Simon Sinek called Find Your Why. 
It was actually really a frustrating read because I thought he was going to actually help me find my why. The whole book is like, you should have a why. I'm like, I wouldn't have bought the book if I, I, <laughs> I know I need a why. And so apparently he has another book called, called Finding, uh, start, or start With Why was the book I read. And he has another one called Find Your Why. But that started helping me think, talking to Jeff Bradbury, he does a lot of stuff with branding um, after getting a chance to be on his show and being able to correspond like, I'm like, hey, I'm thinking about this or what do you think about that? And we go back and forth with different ideas. Um, it really, I was trying to think, what is it? Uh, I, I didn't want to do just one thing. I didn't want to do just middle school math. You know, I don't want to just create content just about middle school math or just about middle school robotics or just helping teachers do a classroom economy or just helping teachers start their own YouTube channel. All those things I find really interesting. So I thought, what's the umbrella that all of these things kind of fall under? And so I felt like, well, all of it, a lot of it's just like innovative work. And so I'm like, well, is it innovation for innovation's sake? So I started thinking like, what is innovation and why is innovation valuable? And so I'm like, well, innovation is really finding a new way to try to solve a problem. Um, it's just solving problems. You've, you've been doing something and it's not working. It's time to innovate. It's time to do something different. Or even in just in the classroom, sometimes innovation, maybe the problem is things are getting stale. I'm doing all of my lessons the same way and everything's very predictable. How can I innovate? How can I do something different and unique just to solve that problem of things getting a little bit stale? And so that's where I felt the value of doing innovative work is. And then that's where I felt the umbrella of what I was doing, where everything fit underneath. I do feel I'm limited in my growth based that that's still kind of a broad umbrella because there are a couple YouTubers, uh, teacher YouTubers that I follow um, that have double or triple the, the, the community and the following size that I do. Um, and I really think it's because they are so focused and everyone knows exactly what to expect from them. Like Mr. Hino Robotics is a teacher and all he has on his channel is middle school robotic stuff from his classroom, from the Lego first Lego league stuff. You know exactly what you're going to get when you go to Mr. Hino's robotics. He has a separate channel of him playing the bass and like all the different songs that he has like playing bass because he likes doing that. And so it's like, if you're interested in that, you can go follow that. But he, he was smart in how he kind of segmented it. And there's another teacher, Laura Rendazzo, I think her name is. She's just solely high school English. And I think it might even be like a certain grade specific, like 10th grade English. And it's just videos she makes in her car about like, here's how we're getting ready for the SATs and stuff. And she's got a really great community because everyone knows exactly what to expect from her. So if you want to do multiple things, you have to know that it's going to be a little bit harder to find and build a community when you are kind of offering quite a few different things, as long as people can kind of see at least what is your umbrella. Um, before I settled on the umbrella of innovation in the classroom and helping teachers do innovative work, my umbrella was like teaching and learning. And that's how I rationalized having camera tutorials and like my low, my, 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 my meal prep videos and stuff were like, it's all about learning new things, you know? And so that was, that was a little bit, a, a broader umbrella that I think made it even more challenging. So I think, what can you talk about? What can you add value? What do you think you do well? Um, and if it's multiple things, how can you tie them together um, and then offer it to, to other people? And something that I do that's unrelated to education at all, um, but I was curious of how it would shape out was I started a, a second Instagram account called books and beef jerky. And it's about, I'm doing beef jerky reviews and doing like just taking a picture of the books that I'm reading because I wanted to read more throughout the year and just writing reflections on them. And so I don't, I don't post that super regularly, but that's kind of a niche of like kind of people who want to eat jerky, but are also into like self-development books. And so it's, it, it was almost an experiment in like, let me see what this niche would look like, you know, and building a community there. So as focused as you can, but still having it be interesting and exciting to do the content and create the content that you want to create. Wow, Tom, that's uh, books and beef jerky. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, Earlier, you mentioned uh, your podcast, which is uh, titled Stories from the Classroom with Tom Gibson. Mm -hmm. You talked about how you got started, but I, th this is what I want to ask you. Why do you believe 
that podcasting is starting to take off with educators. I don't know who said it, but I've, I've heard it said that podcasting is the new blogging. Um, and I think it's, I think it's now that there are more educational podcasts out there, more teachers are hearing about the opportunity and you have more options of personalities that you want to listen to and like content areas that you want to listen to, like just about like now there are podcasts that are really specific to teaching math. I listen to one called making math moments that matter. Um, and there are, there's arts education podcasts and then there's just general pedagogy podcasts like Jennifer Gonzalez's art of our uh, cult of pedagogy. I think the fact that there are more podcasts is bringing more people into the podcasting space. And I think it is at getting more popular because it's one of the few things we can do passively. Um, you can't, you can't really scroll on Instagram on your commute unless you're maybe stuck in traffic or putting yourself at risk by scrolling while you're driving. Um, you can't watch YouTube videos while, while you're, I mean, you can while you're on your walk, but you just, there's, we spend so much time doing things that we can't be looking at our screen, but we can be listening. And so I think with more and more people just kind of being open to the idea of just listening to podcasts um, and finding more and more, having more and more shows about the things that they're interested in, I think that's what's causing this resurgence. And so the more people that are listening, the more people that are saying, maybe I should start my own podcast. And um, my wife never used to listen to podcasts. And just in the past year, she's found two that she loves. And she's, she's a big like Harry Potter, Star Wars nerd, loves all that stuff. And she listens to one called Binge Mode, which is, you know, they're, they're dissecting all of the different narratives of, you know, the Star Wars movies and going into like, she loves that stuff. And then she found one where the two girls from two of the girls from the office are going back and each episode they're talking about a specific episode and all the behind the scenes stuff of that episode. She loves the office. And so she's been going back and listening, you know, on the listening to those like on her commute or something like that when she never used to listen to podcasts because there weren't really podcasts that were very interesting to her. But now there, there are, there's more and more that are coming up. Um, and then in the education space, it's the same case. Yeah. And I'm always, when I speak about it with educators, first I tell the educators, before you bring it to your classroom, you need to become a podcaster yourself mm -hmm. uh, because you have to get comfortable with it, not only with the equipment, but the process of making a podcast because that will help you work with your students. It'll help you guide your students. Don't just read something on podcasting in the classroom and go, oh, I'm going to do it. If you've yeah. never yourself done it and, and, and don't do it three episodes and think you got it. Like really, yeah. you know, give it six months um, to get that. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm nice. Yeah. You know, uh, and with it and I enjoy it simply because I get to have these conversations you know, with people such as yourself, where not only do I get to learn and engage with interesting people, but I get to share their stories mm. with other educators. And I don't have the typical educator podcast. And so mm -hmm. even when I talk to teachers, I say, if you love knitting and knitting is your thing, then do a podcast on knitting. Don't feel like I have to do it on English because I'm an English teacher. Yeah. You know, do because consistency is key. Yeah. So you have to do something that fills you, something that is that tugs at you. And you can put your educator spin on it because guess what? There are educators out there who are knitters as well. Mm -hmm. And so you can talk to that uh, specific niche of educators who, who knit and possibly talk about, hey, how can you bring knitting into your classroom? Yeah. But make sure that you, you know, you, you find a topic that, uh, you can't just throw away or you can easily get bored with. Yeah. I found that too. Just the, the, the conversations it brings the opportunities for conversations that never really would have happened. Um, living in Austin, Texas last year at South by Southwest EDU several weeks beforehand, I had my list of podcast episodes and I topics that I wanted to do. And then I had the list of, educators that were coming to Austin for South by. And so I started trying to mix and match and sending emails and 
it's surprising how many times, you know, if I said, Hey, can we sit down for coffee and just chat? A lot of them are like, ah, I'm, I'm really busy. I've got stuff going on. I'm only going to be in town for a couple of days. But if it's like, Hey, I don't really have that many people that listen to my podcast. I don't say that, but you know, at the time it wasn't a very big podcast and still isn't a huge podcast. But if you say, I would love to feature you on my podcast and talk about the thing that you are coming to Austin to talk about, people are like, Definitely. I, I will make time. I'll make time for this. Um, and I think the biggest name that I had, I wanted to do an episode on using storytelling in the classroom, like telling actual stories of your own life to your students and building connections. Because um, I heard uh, this championship champion storyteller named Matthew Dix on another podcast. And then I said, hey, I'm a teacher. I know you're a champion storyteller and a teacher as well. I'd love to do a podcast on storytelling in the classroom. He's like, yeah, let's do it. I was like, oh my gosh, this guy's like written a book and he wants to be on my, he's willing to be on my podcast. And so I'm like, I actually got to read the book and like try to, you know, so it, it, it le opens to so many opportunities to, to talk to someone that you never would have talked to and talk to them like completely undistracted. Like you're not checking your phone, like you're completely present. Uh, cause you have to be because no one wants to listen to a podcast where people are kind of like checked out. Um, so it's, it's a really cool, it's a cool opportunity, uh, to, to have your podcast to, and to engage in others on the podcast, engage with others on the podcast. So let's get into the work you do as a classroom teacher. Uh, what the heck is a classroom economy and how does it sh fit in with shifting mindsets of teachers and students? Several years ago, I think in my, I'm in my ninth year teaching now in my third year of teaching, I read a book by Rafe Esquith. Um, I can't remember which one it was. It was either there are no shortcuts or teach like your hair's on fire. And he talked about how he had a classroom economy. And I was like, wow, the kids had classroom jobs and they got a salary and they paid rent on their desks and they, they could use the money in a, in a classroom auction every month and people could start their own businesses and sell to their peers and there were bankers and everything. I'm like, wow, this is like amazing. And so but there's only like six pages in the book on it. So I'm like, I was taking pictures and making all these notes and trying to pull out as much as I possibly could. Um, and then it was a second semester of fifth grade. My students already had classroom jobs. That's pretty standard in, in primary, primary levels. And so I kind of introduced to them. I was like, all right, you guys are actually going to get paid for your job and pretend money. And, you know, you're going to have bankers and you're going to have to write checks and go to your bankers and withdraw money and stuff. And it was a total like, not super great and he was completely disorganized and took way too much time and the next year i was like okay let's try it again and make some tweaks here and make some tweaks there and then okay the next year let's try it again and then okay now let me go all digital forget this paper money and everything and i'd used a tool for a while by vanguard they partnered with ray fesquith and they created like all these free resources online called myclassroomeconomy.org and so i used that for a long time but it was all paper-based and so over the course of years i was kind of digitizing everything i was finding out that there are actual websites that you can create a pretend pretend bank accounts where students can have a login and a password and see what their balance is and they can wire money to one another. And, you know, I was like, okay, well, what do I do about, you know, when, if a kid wants to buy their desk, then that means they don't have to pay rent anymore. Like, how do I keep mm. that organized? And so I was like, okay, well, I'll have them fill out this Google form that'll send out this automated message to me and my head banker and they'll make the changes within the, you know, like it was, I was trying to find all these different ways to automate it. And so now it's become something that's, you know, it's really, in addition to teaching financial literacy, because um, kids making money, spending money, saving money, giving money, which I can talk to in a little bit, um, it also serves as my classroom management system because students have classroom fines um, for off-task behavior or for missing work or for tardiness or for rude behavior or something like that. And so kids don't don't want to get fines, and you know, and so. Every, every aspect of the classroom economy, when people are like, well, how do you keep track of this? How do you keep track of that? I find a way to outsource it to a student and create a job out of it. So even with uh, like students getting classroom fines, I write on a clipboard if a student gets a fine and then uh, early in the week on a Monday, I have my fine officer come in, read the clipboard, write out little tickets for everyone that got a fine 
And then the next class period, they pass it out to those students. They ensure that they paid their fines and then they check it off on the clipboard. And so every, I have someone that's in charge of doing that. Um, and then same thing with like having auction items. Uh, students, I want them to be able to use their money uh, on something fun, not just make money and not even be able to do anything with it. So one of the jobs is an auctioneer. And at the beginning of the year, I tell the auctioneer, I'm like, okay, here's a letter that you can take to businesses. You can, here's a Google doc and you can modify it and put the business's name on it and tell them what we're doing and ask if they would like to donate to our classroom economy. And so I've had like $50 little robotics toys. Lululemon donated this $40 Lululemon water bottle in this last auction. And they went to this girl, some of these girls went to a mall and just went to all these different places and they're learning how to get themselves out there and talk to managers and like tell them what they're doing and communicate and everything. And it's so satisfying when they come in and then they bring some items to the auction and the kids are bidding on it and getting excited about it. And so there's like this, this sense of ownership that they have about it. And at the beginning of the year to kind of have that, to enforce that ownership, I don't assign the jobs, but I have them apply to their top three jobs after I talk about what all the jobs are. Um, and then I, have this big spreadsheet that's probably the thing that takes the longest is like okay how can i these are the jobs that i definitely need so if anybody put those in their top three i'm going to go and assign it to them and okay now let me fill this out and um, hopefully give everyone one of their top three we we have conversations i say if i ever reach out to you and say hey i wasn't able to give you one of your top three jobs but you can uh, i would i think you would be a great fit for this job if I ever do that, or if someone ever does that to you, you actually have something called leverage. And so we talk about what leverage is and how you can maybe negotiate with it for a new salary since I'm in the position of need now. And the funniest thing, the first time that happened, I told a student, I emailed him, I'm like, you know, I think couldn't get your top job. Would you be willing to do this? He's like, yes, but I want more money because I have the leverage. <laughs> and so <laughs> we, we, we had a conversation on like tact and how to have that conversation. But the best part about this is like years later, um, I had a, a student who was a junior last year. He was in my class in my seventh grade class, which was one of the first years that I was doing this. He came back to the school and visited and he was like, are you still doing classroom economy? And it's like, yeah. It's like, do you remember when, when, when me and Miles like teamed up on the last auction and we were trying to like pool our money together to buy that broken iPad. And like he, the most memorable thing about our class that year wasn't learning how to use negative exponents or learning how to, how to, you know, solve two-step equations. It was, it was these classroom economy, this classroom economy experience, um, these auctions, these making money, these starting their own businesses, seeing what's working, what's not. Um, and so it's, it, it, it's a, it's a win on so many levels of like classroom management, financial literacy, memorable moments in the classroom, um, business sense. It's, it's done a lot. And, and it's, it leads to so many wonderful conversations. We had a conversation about debt um, in class the other day. And I told them, I'm like, a lot of the, a lot of people will tell you being in debt's just a part of life and they'll get these huge loans out. We talked about student loans versus credit card loans and how long people are like, oh, I'll just pay them off for the next 30 years, you know, and kids are like, that's crazy. I'm like, I know, never get to the place where you don't think that's crazy. <laughs> So it, I, it, it takes, it takes class time, but I feel like those are, those are the lessons that I don't think they're learning enough in class. Um, they'll figure out one and two step equations and we'll still talk about it. Uh, but it's, it's worth the investment of time. It's not a, a massive time investment, um, but it is worth it to, to be able to bring up those conversations and give those kids those opportunities. So if you're a fan of the podcast, then you know, how I feel about financial literacy, education, and entrepreneurship. You wrote a blog post, uh, had the Dave Ramsey book in the graphic, mm -hmm. and you, you talk about how teachers' money problems can impact their teaching. Mm -hmm. um, I want you to expound on that idea, because even earlier today, I sent out a tweet asking teachers, I was like, you know, like educators, if you are having, you know, financial issues at home, do you, do you think it will impact what you do in the classroom, how you teach, how you show up? And all of them were like, yes, for sure, exactly. Like all of them were like, 
you know, and, and part of me doing this was trying to move certain people with me mm-hmm. on this entrepreneurship journey, because some of them, I know they push back because they see what I do as like, oh, but I want, I'm trying to bring it home of saying, when your money is not right, how can you be your best self in the classroom? Yeah. So if you will, uh, speak about that blog post you wrote and how important it is for educators to take more control over their finances. Yeah. I think it's, it's really just like if there's any sort of distress in your life, you, you can't completely separate yourself from that when you walk into a classroom. Um, if me and my wife have a disagreement in the morning before school, like that's going to impact how I show up with my kids. If, if I'm struggling financially and I know I've got these bills at the end of the week that I'm not going to be able to pay, that's going to impact how I actually walk into the classroom. Doesn't mean I'm going to snap at kids. Doesn't mean like it's going to be a bad day automatically. But when those, when those problems are present, you can't fully be there in the classroom without knowing like that, that, that underlying stress that you may not be actively thinking about is still there. Um, and kids can sense that stress. And so the main, the main purpose of the blog post and the video that was with it wasn't, wasn't, that was like the very first little bit. And one of my things that with education is so many times people talk about the problem, but they don't talk about like what to do about it. And so like, I didn't talk so much about creating like, a side income or entrepreneurship in that video. But what I did talk about was, was creating a plan for your money, um, was learning like the things that I had learned from the book, the, the total money makeover by Dave Ramsey about budgeting, about, about knowing, not having a question mark of, I hope I have enough money at the end of the month this month. Um, cause no matter what situation you're in, like you can do the things that, that he says to do in, in, in his, in his little, in his seven step program about getting out of debt. And if you're not someone who likes to read, he's got a podcast. And if you listen to like five episodes, you're going to basically start getting his message. The Dave Ramsey show, um, of like, okay, when you have a plan, have a budget, what that means is that you're not, it's not, you're just kind of thinking about what you're going to spend money, write it down, use a budgeting app. He's got one called every dollar. I use one called good budget. I love it. It can see like, okay, when I get this much money, I'm going to put this much towards my savings. I'm going to put this much towards groceries. I'm going to put this much towards gas. I'm going to put this much towards eating out. I'm going to put this much in my savings account for Christmas gifts at the end of the year, even though it's March. I'm going to put this much in my savings account for our trip that we want to go on next summer and not hope that the money just arrives. Having a plan and not trying to keep up with it all yourself was really the main, the main message of that video. And my wife, She's a pediatrician, but, and I'm sure a lot of people can hear that and be like, oh, that's, that's easy for you to say. Your wife makes a lot of money. She's a pediatrician. But with that pediatrician came $120,000 worth of student loan debt. And with that plan of thinking, okay, how much can we live off of? Let's put the rest towards this loan. We paid off that $120,000 in less than four years. And we were, we didn't, that didn't mean that we were literally not doing anything, never going out but we had a plan. How much money do we want to spend going out? How much money do we want to spend on a vacation this summer? And then the rest of that money we put towards the loan. And what I love about his methods is like he, what's called, he does what's called the snowball effect where you put your debts in order from, you you ignore interest rates. You put your debts in order from smallest to largest, and then you pay the minimum payments on all of them. And then any of the extra money that you've allotted to pay off this debt, you put all of that towards the smallest one. And then that one's gone. And then you put it towards the next smallest one. And then that one's gone. And then you feel like, oh, I'm making progress. I'm actually paying this off. I'm seeing some of these debts go away. And then you you now have a bigger amount of money that you're putting towards the next smallest one. And it's like a snowball that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger to the point that you're now at at the last one. And you're like, okay, I'm putting all of my money that I've put for, that I've set aside to pay off this debt towards this big final last debt, whether it's a car, whether it's a credit card, whether it's student loans, it's gonna, it's, 
I, I can actually tell you when this will be paid off based on how much money I'm putting towards it. And so that was kind of the general premise of the video. Um, and I also talked about how it influenced the conversations that I have with students, like what I was just saying a little bit earlier about debt when talking to students in the classroom economy. Um, but there, you don't have to just hope that things get better. You can actually come up with a plan. Maybe it doesn't take four years. Maybe it takes five. Maybe it takes six. That's okay. But at least you have a plan and you're not just saying, I hope this goes away someday. I hear you. I hear you. And, and I love that. And I, and I want educators to think about that. But you also, which leads me to my next question, is you have to create multiple streams of income. Look, you can save and you should save and you should cut out wasteful spending, but let's be real. There is only so much saving and cutting you can do mm -hmm. when you're talking about growing your money and preparing for the unexpected. You know, this month I was driving, I think it was last month, I was driving and all of a sudden I, I heard, I, I put my foot on the brake and I heard <sighs> now folks, when you hear that, that is metal on metal, right? You got to get your brakes done now. You can't wait for it. You can't save for it. You can't hope for it. It got to be done now because you can hurt yourself and someone else. I wasn't expecting that, but that was 480 something dollars I had to pay that day. Mm -hmm. Now, when you don't prepare for this stuff like that, that four hundred eighty seven eighty some dollars can be crippling to some people. Yeah, and some people don't have it; and they got to go borrow it. And this is why you have to create the multiple streams of income to not only fend off when stuff like this happens, but in my opinion, to make sure that in the long haul, if you say, "Hey, we want to go to Hawaii," you can make that happen because you don't want your savings to be your total bailout fund. You also, you know, I'm thinking. I'm not thinking about my savings for now. I'm thinking about my savings when I, if I'm 70, you know, inshallah, I'm, I'm blessed to live to be 70. I want something else sitting there outside of social security and whatever retirement I get. So I want your opinion on how important it is for educators to invest in themselves by mm -hmm. actually creating multiple streams of income. Yeah, I would say it's, the first place is kind of coming up with an idea. Um, one of the podcasts that I listened to is called Side Hustle School. And it's by a guy named Chris Gillibo. It's a podcast, a 10-minute podcast every day of someone who's got a side hustle. It's not just educators. And so just being able to hear these different ideas a lot of times can spark like, oh, I didn't even know that was a thing. I think I could, I might be able to do something like that and start making some income. So I think that's going to be one of the first places is just generating ideas. He's also got books called like side hustle, side hustle school or something like that, that can help guide. But, um, for me, it was, it started with freelancing, uh, freelancing on free, like websites that you could just go in and create an account and say what you're willing to do. Uh, you could do freelance editing. You could do freelance, like writing, editing, and like helping people with their resumes or stuff that maybe you even do in the classroom. Um, and so for me, I was like, well, what are my skills? Okay. Well, I have an audio engineering degree. Um, I always thought voiceover work could be pretty cool. And so I started doing voiceover work back in 2015 on fiverr.com. And what was great about that was other websites, you kind of have to bid for jobs and say like, people post their jobs and you're like, I'm willing to do it for this much money. And so sometimes you win the bid, sometimes you don't. The good thing about Fiverr is like you post up your, your profile, say what you're willing to do, maybe create a little video and kind of show some sample work. Uh, and then people come to you and you can price out like for voiceovers, it's based on word count. And so you can price out, okay, if you have a, a 50 word voiceover and you need it in one day, okay, well, it's gonna be a little more expensive than if you just need it in the standard three days. And so you can start learning and seeing what other people do to price these things out. You don't have to come up with it all on your own. Um, and then that's actually out of all the stuff that I'm doing, that's probably the most lucrative thing that I've done in the last few years. And it doesn't take that much time. Um, and the more you do it, the higher your rating gets, the more you can actually begin to charge. And so I would say if you're starting to do freelancing, uh, start low, maybe even do some work for free just so you can create some kind of portfolio that shows off your work. And then as you get more of a reputation, get more five-star reviews, on whatever platform you're using, then you can actually begin to raise your price a little bit and say, okay, well, let me see, will people 
pay this. Okay. Well, I haven't gotten any work in a month and a half. Let me maybe pull it back down a little bit and see what happens. And then every few months or every few years or maybe months, uh, if you get more work, maybe start taking some of that work and creating a new video that shows off the more recent work that you've done to show that, Oh, you're getting better at this and you're offering a better product because you are doing this more. And so, I would say that that's probably one of the, of course, tutoring is an option and everything like that. But what I like about doing the freelance work is when you start to build your reputation and build your, build your, um, build yourself on these platforms, you're able to begin to make more money for less time. Um, for a lot of times, I think when people tutor, I think $50 to $75 an hour is generally standard. Um, and then the good thing about tutoring is it's probably pretty consistent. You can say like, it's going to be every Friday or something like that. But with the freelance voiceover work, I can get that much money in 15 minutes of work, 20 minutes of work. I go in my closet, I record the voiceover, I take out the mistakes, I process it, and then I email it to them. Or you see someone's resume, you edit it, you make suggestions, you send it back to them. And the more you do it, the, the faster you're going to get. And you start having the skills to be able to see things a lot quicker and, and do the work a lot quicker and then actually get paid at the hourly rate much higher than you would as than if you were doing some kind of face-to-face -face tutoring or something like that. So I would say find ideas on a podcast or books like Side Hustle, Side Hustle School, um, and then freelance. Uh, that's going to be something you don't have to go somewhere for. You can do it from your home. Um, and there's freelancing for just about any kind of skill. Cool, cool. So before we go, what is your advice uh, to that teacher who doesn't feel that they're in a good place in their career. Uh, they're, they know that something's missing. They could be bored and they want to, I always tell people that if, and I know we joke about this as educators all the time. Um, you see those memes pop up during, you know, Christmas break and spring break of people like sprinting, uh, you know, like freedom. But if you have to every day give yourself a, a self-help motivational talk for Monday morning, you might be in the wrong profession. <laughs> uh, so what do you say to those teachers who they, they feel stuck? They don't feel inspired anymore. Yeah. And you may be in the wrong profession or you may be in the wrong school. And, and what's hard is I, I, I'm part of several Facebook groups and I hear the stories of what, you know, Facebook groups for teachers and I hear some of the stories and you never know like how many different opportunities these people have, uh, where they're living and uh, how big the district is or something like that. But I would say if someone's listening to this podcast that they have some kind of inkling of wanting to do some kind of entrepreneurship. And so I would say first reflect on what aspect of your life are you unsatisfied with? Are you unsatisfied with your relationships? And that's kind of bleeding into your classroom or are your relationships fine and you're just unsatisfied with your classroom work? Why are you unsatisfied with your classroom work? Is it because of the, what you're teaching or do you feel it's gotten stale or is it the students or is it the administration? What aspects are leaving you unsatisfied? And, then if you're hopefully that will help influence a little bit of your next action steps of like i'm unsatisfied because of this um i'm unsatisfied because i want to actually create content but i don't know how or where to start well you if you know that that's the reason that you're unsatisfied then you can actually begin to make a plan if you don't know that's the reason then you don't know how to make you can't make a plan based on something that you don't know and so if you're listening to this podcast and there's something inside of you that says you want to do some kind of entrepreneurship, whether it's actually directly related to being a teacher and helping other teachers, or maybe not, I would come up with a plan of like, okay, in the next two weeks, what's one thing I can do to move forward in that, in that plan, in that process. Maybe it's create a teacher Instagram account. Maybe it's start a blog. Maybe it is start my own little podcast where I recorded on my phone or a YouTube channel where I recorded on my phone. And and then start moving forward, continue to listen to episodes of things like this and think, okay, well, I'm learning if I'm going to do Instagram, they say that it's good to post every, at least one story every day. Okay. I'm going to sit down for 15 minutes, 20 minutes and think, okay, what, uh, what story am I going to post for the next week each day? Uh, that's hopefully going to bring value to the people that I want. You start creating this plan and moving forward and, and hopefully just kind of gets you, you out of that rut when you're doing something new and doing something exciting, 
that that begins to find its way into other areas of your life. You start beginning to feel a little bit more satisfied. And so that's what I would say. Um, the hard thing with listening to so many podcasts is sometimes you, 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 you take in so much, but you don't act on any of it. If you're finding, unsatisf- finding yourself unsatisfied, what is one thing you can do in the next week or in the next two weeks to begin to move forward? Not researching more, not figuring out new things and best practices or everything you need to do. What can you do? What can you start? What can you create in the next week? And do it. Make a plan for it. Where's the, where's the 15, 20, 30 minutes in the day that you can devote to this? And then go from there. Awesome. What a great way to end this episode. Folks, I'd like to thank my guest, uh, Tom Gibson, for coming on and dropping the gems. Uh, this episode will be able to be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher and Simplecast. I need you to subscribe, follow, leave your ratings, share with people because your boy's trying to get Oprah on the show. And I want her to know that I'm doing big things around here. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Tom Gibson. And thank you for checking out the Dr. Will Show, the mobile university for entrepreneurs. As always, people, invest in you. EDU, peace.